Um, last week, if you were not with us, we focused in on the first of two, three, or four, depending on how you break it down, Paul's request in his second prayer of this epistle. Uh, I want this morning, we're going to begin to look at the second half of 17 at the second request. Um, would you just pray with me? Father, I thank you for your son. I thank you that, Lord, through me, you will speak your truth to each of us. Holy Spirit, give us ears this morning to receive this teaching. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Again, this uh, grammatical construction in the Greek is quite difficult, but it seems very reasonable to me that um, 17 and uh, 18, the end of 17 and 18 go together. But just for clarity and context, I want to start back at 14. It says, for this reason, and that either hails back to the end of verse 1 or the end of verse 3, depending on how you see the, the grammar. But Paul is saying that he brought this mystery to the Gentiles. God has given him this task. And for this reason, he bows his knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant to you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Bear in mind that in the original, there were no verse, there were no indentations, there were no paragraph. Again, we will pick up at the end of 17, even though your verse, your translation may have a period, a different kind of punctuation, says, and that you being rooted and grounded in love. This is the second request. May be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. Rooted in love, here's a picture of a sturdy growing tree, its roots growing down deep that it can withstand the hurricanes. It can withstand drought because the roots are so down deep into the soil, which is God's love. From botany, he quickly moves into architecture. Being grounded in love, and here's a picture as a Greek word of a foundational stone. A stone that can stand up against a flood or an earthquake because it's built on the rock of Christ. On God's love, it does not fluctuate with feeling or circumstances, the things that are going on around us. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, 38 and 39, For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels or principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Being rooted and grounded in that stable source of God from which all agape comes. That is how we are able to, catch this, Comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. More literally, verse 18 says that you may have the strength to grasp with all the saints. This immense love of God is not an easy or humanly attainable revelation. In order for us to even be able to understand his love, we must first be rooted and grounded in it. Amen. 
You will not comprehend the depth or breadth or length or width of God's love until you first let your roots sink down into his love, until you're first established and grounded in him. How many of you have ever thought, well, I'm naturally a loving person, but that individual is just unlovable? Is that just me? Anyone ever had those feelings? You see, the thing is, agape love is not natural. It comes from God. So the, the, to the degree that you are even able to love anyone is the depth of your roots. You must first be rooted and grounded in him. See, the, the problem is not the people around you are unlovable. I reckon that the problem may just be that we have not been rooted and grounded in Christ the way that we should be. John said it this way. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Amen? It's convicting, isn't it? May our roots go down deep. May we be grounded and established and built up in the love of God, that we are able to extend that love to the world, that we would also be able to grasp or comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. Are you seeing what I see? God's love is four-dimensional. We're living in a 3D world. But God's love is out of this world, isn't it? The breadth of his love is extended to all who believe. One of the first verses that many come to know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe it, whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And as we grow and we mature, we begin to get, understand his love on a different level. We begin to think about verses like in Philippians where Jesus emptied himself taking on the form of a bondservant being made in the likeness of men. Being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross, what greater love is this that a man laid down his life? So Jesus' love, we get this second dimension of his love, and we begin to feel this in our own hearts and spirit, man. We can't go any lower than the death of a cross for sinful people. The perfect spotless lamb died for us. This is how deep the love of Jesus is for us. And then we begin to mature a little bit. We begin to realize that God's love has more than two dimensions. We begin to understand that his love allows us to be raised up to incredible heights. We've read it not too long ago in Ephesians chapter 2. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in transgressions, made us alive together in Christ Jesus and seated us together in the heavenly places in Christ. That's the love of God. Many of us get stuck at God so loved the world. And then we grow and we feel, he died for me. Do you know what that means? I was so sinful. But then for no reason, he seated us up in the heavenly places in Christ. That's the love of God. But let's not settle for three-dimensional love while we're at it. I mean, why would you when God's love is four-dimensional I have loved you with an everlasting love, eternal love. It can never be broken. It can never be taken away. Nothing can separate you kind of love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness, he says in Jeremiah. 
Oh, to be so rooted and grounded and planted and established and substantiated and entrenched and fixed in his love. That's Eric's amplified version. That we might be able to have the strength to comprehend and understand and grasp the breadth and length and height and depth of his love. His love is so vast. Catch this, that we have to be first rooted and grounded in it just to be able to ponder and think on it. I wonder if you are rooted and grounded in his love. Verse 19, he continues this thought. And to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. On one hand, Paul is writing of something that we can know. The love of Christ is not speculation, it's not guesswork, it's not emotional, it isn't based in feelings. But on the other hand, we cannot know it. It's this deliberate paradox in writing. We know something of his great love, but in another sense we can never know it completely. Because it is unfathomable, it's beyond human reasoning. It's acquired, but not by human knowledge, it's a divine deposit. John Ellicott in his commentary wrote, The meaning of St. Paul's prayer seems to be that they may know from time to time as each opportunity offers, what must in its entirety pass all human knowledge, either to discover or fully to understand, even when revealing itself, so that they may always go on from faith to faith, from knowledge to knowledge, and yet find new depths still to be fathomed. So we get little glimpses of his love from time to time, but we cannot even go on to plummet its entire depths. This is a knowledge that we can grow in, but it's only by a divine grace of God that we're allowed to understand and comprehend it at all. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. See, knowing loves Christ is a never-ending process because it's unknowable. May we love the same way that God loves us. Now, I do want us to be practical in applying Paul's point here. Some people step into Christian life from an upbringing where love was not present. It was non-existent. All they've known in their childhood is anger and abuse. Some of you may be in relationships where you experience this. But you hear about the love of Christ on the cross. You trust Jesus is Savior and make him your Lord of your life. You step into this brand new world trying to fathom and understand what love is. The thing is, God's love is not earthly love. Don't ever compare God's divine agape love to the love that you've experienced, whether you grew up in a good and healthy home or whether you grew up in an abusive one. God's love is perfect. Just because you didn't have a loving mom or dad doesn't mean that you will not be able to grasp God's love. See, it's a divine deposit. It has to come by the Holy Spirit being strengthened within our inner man that we could be able to comprehend or grasp it. Even a child with the breast upbringing must be rooted and grounded in agape before they can begin to plumb the depths of God's love. I'm so sorry for those that ever had flawed, abusive parents. I truly am. But we need to know that the Holy Spirit can help us to comprehend God's perfect love. And no matter what household you were brought in, get your roots down deep into Christ. Yeah. Ask the Father to show you his heart for how he loves you. 
and he's for you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Within that everlasting love we just read about in Jeremiah, even in all of your sin and sickness and sorrow, oh, Jesus is calling. I love you. I love you. And he desires to be in us so that we can come to know this divine and perfect love which surpasses knowledge. He says, the only way you can get a glimpse of my love is to begin to seek my love. Lastly, I want to make clear that although there is a place for knowledge, and actually that's the next part of the next verse, if you acquire knowledge without love, you will only feed pride. Paul says that if we have all knowledge, but we do not have love, we are nothing. 1 Corinthians 13, 2. Now, knowledge is good and helpful and right, and we must have a knowledge of God to be able to fathom and be, to begin to look at his love and understand what he did for us to be able to comprehend it. But if there's no love, it's that grounding thing. What's the fruit of the Spirit? Love first. Love is that foundation, and all other fruits and gifts of the Spirit must be grounded in love. And that's what Paul outlines very clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter. You hear about at weddings, really has nothing to do about a marriage love. Sorry to break it to you if you're getting married and plan on using that verse, or you already did. That's about God's agape love that we grow in as believers, but it's really that love that allows us to do anything good and well for God. We have to have that love if we want true knowledge of Him. We have to have that love if we want to operate in the gifts of the Spirit. That's that love. But as we begin to grow in that love, we can begin to understand and fathom even more of His love. That's what he's talking about. So knowledge is good, but it must be rooted, rooted and grounded in love also. Verse 19. Someone tie me down. That you may be filled through all your being unto all the fullness of God may have the richest measure of the divine presence and become a body wholly filled and flooded with God himself. Adam Clark said to be filled with God is a great thing. To be filled with the fullness of God is still greater. But to be filled with all the fullness of God utterly bewilders the sense and confounds the understanding. It would be so presumptuous to even imagine that we can fathom the depth of this verse. I can't think of a more shocking statement probably in all the Bible. First glance, it sounds almost blasphemous, but of that I'm sure it is not. I believe it is inspired and perfect because it's part of the infallible word of God. And so because it's in our Bibles, it must have a place within our hearts. And I will try my best to unpack this bold and high request. He prays that we might be filled even unto all the fullness of God. Now, let us not go too far with this, for it's not saying that we will become God, but rather be filled with the fullness of God's. In other words, 
our conformity to Christ will glorify us but will not deify us. So what exactly does it mean then to be filled with the fullness of God? Well, turn to Colossians and Philippians. They're both to your right. And keep your finger in Philippians 2. And we're going to be in Colossians 1 and 2. I'm going to read a bunch of these verses real quick together. This is where, uh, not to pick on anybody on their phones or iPads, that's fine, follow along. But this is where it does help to have a paper Bible, I think, at times. Flipping between verses can be faster. I'm going to start in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. It says, He, that's Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Philippians 2, 6 says, who, although he existed in the form of God, that's Jesus, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, verse 7, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, of death on a cross, of obedience to that, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Now flip over to Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. For in Jesus, in him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Let's look back at Colossians 1, 19. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all of the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of the cross, through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Let me sum this up. What do I get from it? Basically this. Because Jesus, the Son of God, who is the exact representation of God's very being, came down to earth and humbled himself to become a man, and obediently humbled himself even unto the cross, but not by his own agenda or through his own intrinsic value or worth. He did that out of submission to the Father. He was therefore given the glory by God the Father and was raised up and seated in the heavenly places. Now because he is that exact representation of God in bodily form, he is the complete glory of the Father. He is an earthly representation of the fullness of God. I know, it's a bunch of words that may not really help you. But that wasn't my intention to help you because I want you to consider the implications in the, the intertwined theology that's all wrapped up in the simple verse or simple saying of being filled with the fullness of God because it's not just a simple statement to unpack. There's implications of Jesus being the fullness of God and what it means to be filled with Christ and, and how he even got to that honor to begin with. Let us first consider that the truth of Jesus being filled with the fullness of God. That's Colossians 1 and 2, which we picked out some verses. I think one way to look at Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 3 is in light of this context, that Jesus is filled with the fullness of God. It pleased God, as he said in Colossians. It pleased God to fill him with the fullness. It says also that Jesus was the fullness of the deity in bodily form. So what does it mean to be filled with the fullness of God? Well, it means to be filled with Christ, right? If Christ is the fullness of God, then we're just really filling ourselves with Christ. But I think there's a problem here for us. 
Does it sound different to anyone else or is it just me to be filled with Jesus as it does to be filled with the fullness of God? Be honest. Why? Why? I'll tell you my hunch on the matter. It's because we don't picture Jesus in our minds as being filled with the fullness of God. Turn to Matthew chapter 17. I'm going to go a little scripture workout this morning. So I want us to try and use our imagination and put ourselves in this place of Peter, James, and John as Jesus went up the mount. As you're turning there, I want you to imagine, what does Jesus look like to you? You know, soft eyes, fluffy beard, white robe, purple sash, shepherd's hook in his right arm, got a child under his left arm, right? You can picture it. Why? You've seen it in children's books a hundred times. Well, what's the problem? Nothing, but possibly everything. It's not wrong to see Jesus in human sight. After all, he is the son of man. He was and is fully human. The problem is, catch this, when we fail to perceive him as utterly and entirely God. Matthew chapter 17, verse 1. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. He was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun. His garments became as white as light. Behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, is it good for us to be here? If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, get up and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. Were the disciples in the flesh? Were they overreacting to a little bit of shininess? Is it possible that we're more spiritual than them? Is it just because we have the Holy Spirit? Well, I think that that can be answered by recognizing that the disciples saw Jesus in a new way that they had never seen him before. They saw Jesus for the first time as God. I must confess to you all this morning, I have not seen Jesus fully and completely as God. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. For... Now I see in a mirror dimly. But then face to face, now I know in part, but then I will know fully just as I have been fully known. See, what was happening is that the disciples like us see Jesus dimly. But I believe that day on that mount, they got to see Jesus in all of his glory. It is okay to put the Son of Man into a manageable light and to picture him the way that we do in children's books, but we fail when we insist that the Son of God must fit into that very same box. They are one and the same, and yet they are not. It's like putting God into a box and telling kids, he won't fit. 
God won't fit in the box. He's too big. And the kids say, well, get a bigger box, which is exactly what we do theologically. We use a bigger box. No matter what flowery language we, or theological words and terms we make up, we try to describe the glory of Yahweh God, we will fall short. We cannot comprehend His glory because our minds are too small to comprehend it. Isaiah got a glimpse. He said, woe is me, I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. Isaiah chapter 6. Oh, to see him face to face in all his glory. You see, we're not much different than the pre-transfiguration disciples. They were drawn to Jesus. They were amazed. They were in love with him. They saw his miracles. He walked on water. He healed the lame, but they had not seen Jesus, the Son of God, in all of his glory. And I think the danger that we need to be aware of and guard against is the same thing, that we would not put Jesus into that box of only humanism, that we would see the duality of Jesus and understand that when it says Jesus is the fullness of the deity and we are seeing a verse that says that you may be filled unto the fullness of God, we would recognize that being filled with all of Jesus is not just a picture of, of Jesus happily living in our heart with all his white garments and there's his nail-pierced hands. It's God himself descended in bodily form wants to take up residence within you in your spirit man with the Holy Spirit there and you have communion and access to him. That's what Paul's praying that we would be filled unto the fullness of the one who created the entire universe with a spoken word. Be filled unto the fullness of God. Disciples were terrified. Sure, there's an application for us there that we ought not be terrified of God's presence. We can draw near with confidence, and that's true. Thanks be to God for the precious blood of the Lamb that washes us as white as snow. But I reckon that I would have been no different than Peter in that day. Peter, what did he want to do? He wanted to build a box for Jesus. He didn't call it a box, he called it a tabernacle. But it was a box, it was a way to control Jesus. While he was still speaking and trying to figure out what was going on, he was still making plans to have everything fit into his own comprehension. Heaven interrupted him. This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. There are no words for such a moment like that. We try to imagine, but I am certain that it pales in comparison. They tried to put Jesus full of glory into a box, but they were not able. And when they realized this, their faces turned pale and their knees gave out. They became frightened and fell to the ground, which is, generally speaking, probably a very appropriate and normal response. Fear. You see, most fears are toxic. They don't come from God. There's no place for fear in the life of a believer other than the fear of Yahweh God, a reverence for Him. There's a fear of God which is healthy and valuable and blessed and appropriate. The fears of the world whittle away at our peace which God promises until we're turned into slaves unable to escape the bondage that we have put ourselves in. But when God reveals Himself to us, there's this different kind of fear involved. I wonder if you might remember this fear. 
that deep awe of the Lord that you feel in your spirit, man, which forces you to the ground in repentance, in weeping, and in worship. When was the last time you so beheld Jesus that you fell to the ground and were left speechless? I'm guessing for most of us it's been a while, which is perhaps why in part everyday fears of everyday life paralyze so many. For when Jesus becomes our gaze, our fears dissolve. That is, the bigger you imagine Christ, the smaller your fears will become. Small Jesus, big worries and trouble. Big Jesus, no worries, no fear. A great God leads to great courage. A small perception of Jesus, on the other hand, leads to anxiety when things don't go our way. A small perception of Jesus leads to believers shut up in their homes because of an airborne disease that he has already bore on his back. We must magnify Jesus. In C.S. Lewis's book, Prince Caspian, Lucy comes back. It had been a long time since she had been to Narnia. And for the first time in many years, she says, Aslan, you're bigger. Aslan, if you're not aware of the story, it represents Jesus, the lion. He says to her, that's because you are older, little one. She responded, not because you are. And he said, I am not, but every year you grow, you will find me bigger than I was. Amen. When we put the Son of God into a box so that we can better manage our theology, our schedule, our daily lives, he cannot exchange our fears of the future, the economy, death, or disease into glimpses of heaven. He desires to do so, but we must gaze on him. We must be so rooted and grounded in his love that he begins to take those fears and say, the only thing you should be fearing is me. Stand before me in all my glory. Why would you be afraid of a disease when I'm the God that heals? As I've said before, we can trust God for our salvation, but we can't trust him for our healing. We need to behold this Jesus, the one filled with the fullness of the deity in bodily form, in all of his glory, even if we have no words. He's the one who shines with the light of the sun, who ascended to heaven, who sits at the right hand of God on the throne. The angels are singing over him, holy, holy, holy. That's our Lord. Look at him. Keep your gaze focused on him. When you're afraid and when the fears of life begin to shadow over you, embrace Jesus in all the glory, the fullness of he is that he is God. The longer, we be, the longer we know him, the bigger he becomes. And it's not he who changes, but we begin to see more and more of him. When Paul prays for us to be filled with the fullness of God, I like to imagine it as a prayer of being so full of Jesus that we not only look like him, we begin to act like him, speak like him, operate like him, teach like him, heal like him. In other words, that we would be so indwelt and filled with Christ, which is the fullness of the deity, the fullness of God, that the world would actually be able to meet God through us. I don't just want to look like Jesus. I want to act like him. I want to talk like him. I want to do the things he did. But in order to do that, I must first be rooted and grounded in his love that I would be filled to the fullness of God. And as we close, I want to point out one more consideration of this phrase, being filled with the fullness of God. 
Scripture often speaks of things of God as being already but not yet. So there's an aspect of this truth is that in this context of the Greek, it's completed right now. This is a now verse. We can com be completed in God. We can participate in it. But there's also this future dimension that is saying we only know in part. We have the fullness of God in us in the person of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. The problem is we may not be aware of the reality of that. And so we each have to seek God and say, God, I want a better revelation and understanding of the truth of this. I want you to speak to me and reveal to me the depths of this verse because we can only come to know that by the Holy Spirit who teaches us all things, who guides us into all truth. Paul is praying that we would come to have experiential knowledge of the fullness of God. He wants us to actually experience it. This is what we have in Christ. It's a right now prayer that the all-powerful, great, and wonderful things that God is and possesses would be made manifest in and through us. That as we are strengthened with power through his spirit and as Christ abides in our hearts through faith and as we would come to know the better dimensions of his love, that we would experience more and more of the fullness of God. That's, I believe, what Paul is asking and praying over the Ephesian believers. Curtis, it's my prayer that we would be so rooted and grounded in love that we would be able to comprehend and know the four-dimensional love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that we would be filled up to the fullness of God himself. Let's pray.